given my uh, background in the law, I am very used to disclaimers. <laughs> so I have a disclaimer to give, and, and, and the first disclaimer is that I didn't pick the subject. I was assigned the subject, and I couldn't dodge the bullet. Uh, when I um, grew up in Chicago, how many people are from the Midwest or the Northeast? Well, you know how cold it gets in the winter? Uh, every, every day in the winter, my mother made me take a tablespoon, not a teaspoon, a tablespoon of cod liver oil. Uh, you know, to fight off whatever cold kind of sicknesses would come. And I hated cod liver oil. And if you've ever tasted cod liver oil, you know why I hate it. And I would tell my mother that I can't stand this stuff. Uh, but what would bug me more than anything was her reply that it didn't taste that bad. <laughs> and I would say, well, you taste it then. And I kept saying that. So one day, and I said, Mom, I don't want to take it. It's lousy. And she says, it doesn't taste that bad. And I said, okay, you taste it. And if you swallow it, I'll never complain again. So I poured it into her tablespoon, and I wanted it to get right up to that brimming part. <laughs> and she gulped it. And it was so funny trying to, watching her face while she tried not to gag at the taste. And she said, it's horrible. <laughs> and I said, I told you. And so from that point on, what she would do is take, follow it up with a spoon of honey and she'd squeeze just a little lemon in it. So, and that would cut the aftertaste of the cod liver oil. Well, this message is sort of like this. Uh, so I'm warning you right now that for the first part, it's going to be cod liver oil. But uh, at the end, I'm going to follow it with a spoon of honey with just a lemon, and it'll cut the bad taste that we start out with. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll go into uh, the text for uh, today. Lord, I just pray that you would open all our hearts, that uh, you would teach us about your plan uh, to abolish evil in the world. May we uh, approach this humbly, knowing that we need your revelation in order to wrestle with a very difficult subject. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I've got a, a lot of text and I'm going to read through it. And the first one from Isaiah, I didn't know whether to put before or after Genesis because part of the action in 14 is before Genesis and part of it is after Genesis. But I decided to throw it at the top. Isaiah 14, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, which is another name for Satan or the devil, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And now Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye 
and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, saying, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, when I was a, a student at Dartmouth, one of the questions I used to pepper professing Christians with was the one we are dealing with today. If God is good, how can evil exist? And let me tell you, none of them had an answer that I felt was the least bit adequate or helpful. And it is, uh, it is a problem, and, and I really have, have had some thoughts about it, but until I got this lesson, I hadn't really had the discipline to actually force myself to think through the issue. And so I am thankful to Dick and Doug for imposing this uh, uh, assignment on me. Um, I remember in college reading a play by Archibald McLeish called JB. It was a takeoff on the story of Job. And in that play, he wrote this. Uh, if God is good, no, if God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he is not God. Because he had looked at the circumstances in Job's life and had reached that conclusion. And then another English philosopher, looking at the same problem of evil, said this about God. If God has the will to eliminate evil, I'm sorry, the, yes, the, the power to eliminate evil, but not the will to eliminate it, he is malevolent. If he has the will to eliminate evil, but not the power to eliminate it, he is irrelevant. Boy, I thought that was deep. So when I got this assignment and, and, and beginning to think about it systematically, uh, I came to mind the passage from Isaiah and the passage from Genesis, which we have read. Satan's fall, now I know there, and I'm hoping that there are people here who really haven't decided that they buy into this Christianity thing. They, you're here to explore and you have questions in your mind and a lot of issues that you haven't resolved yet. And, and the first one is this, this Satan. It, it sounds like a big buggy boo. And it sounds really kind of weird and, and spacey. Uh, something that they put on the sci-fi channel. Uh, but in the Christian doctrine, Satan is an actual personality. Jesus understood that he existed. Jesus talked with him, and he understood his influence in the world. So I am going to take the approach that Jesus took, that Satan is an actual personality. It is a being that exists. And I know you may not be there yet, but just walk through with me sort of the Bible's view of this personality. In the part we just read from Isaiah, 
he was one of the three archangels. There was Michael, there was Gabriel, and there was Lucifer, which means son of light, Lucifer being light. But he wanted to exalt himself to be like God. And in that process, he had three problems which help us look at the existence of sin or, or evil. One was pride. Although he was a created being, he looked at himself and saw in himself what you and I see, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He particularly so. And in his pride felt that he ought to have a status equal with God. But he was also had this desire for autonomy. That is to be self-governing. That I can act without consequence. If there are consequences, they are only the consequences that I accept or that I might impose on myself. Now that's a status that only God enjoys. God can act and he acts without consequences. He is answerable to no one but himself. If he swears, it is only upon his own name. He is answerable only to God. There is no judge above him and there's no one who can question him or say to God, stop what you're doing or start what you are not doing. And that is what Satan wanted. He wanted to be able to act without being answerable to God. And the third facet is that he, because it says in that verse, I will be like the most high. But he also wanted his identity to be separate from and apart from God. He didn't want to go to God and say, who am I, what is my purpose, and what would you have me do? He wanted to define himself. And so part of the sin or evil in his life was pride. Part of the evil in his life was the desire to be self-governing and auto autonomous. And the other part was to root his identity or seek to root his identity in something or someone other than God. And in, in his case, the something or someone else was himself. He wanted to define who he was without reference to the God who created him. Now, I know uh, that, that if, if you're like I was in college, that sounds utterly weird. But let me go on and have the Bible describe his purpose. One was to deceive God's creation, which he did with Eve. The other was to lead into sin, which he did with Adam. And in 1 Peter, we find Jesus, I mean, uh, uh, Satan described as a roaring lion, not literally, figuratively. The roaring means that he's constantly in anger. He's constantly on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour. The serpent in this story just being a representative of Satan himself. Um, in uh, Luke 13, which we studied earlier in the series that we did when we were going through the Gospel of Luke, told the story of a woman who was bound with the spirit of infirmity for 18 years, and she was bent and twisted. And in other of the uh, scenes that we have seen from the study of the Gospel of Luke, people have been inhabited by or oppressed by demons whom Jesus expelled by his own power. I remember being in a gym uh, a number of years ago, and it was when uh, the terrible tragedy in Rwanda was happening, where the Hutus and the Tutsis had been able to live together in relative peace for a, a period of time. And then the the tribe that was dominant in number got upset that the, the minority tribe seemed to occupy all the high-level positions. And there was this incredible massacre in Rwanda. And that was uh, shown in the film Hotel Rwanda that came out several years ago, if any of you have seen that incredible movie. Stuart Spani, 
is a video producer from uh, Canada who was there. And, and I don't believe he was a Christian, but in seeing the incredible carnage in Rwanda, made this statement, which was reported in Time magazine. He said, there are no more demons in hell. They are all in Rwanda. That, that Satan has uh, an ability to influence behavior, to inhabit people, but doesn't necessarily have to inhabit people in order to influence behavior. But the desire he has is to turn people away from God by whatever means necessary. Uh, how many of you saw that wonderful movie with uh, Keanu Reeves and, and uh, was it Al Pacino where he played Satan? Devil's Advocate. And in it, Keanu Reeves was a lawyer. And, you know, all really good movies have a lawyer in it. <laughs> That's just the way it is. And um, Keanu was playing the role of a, a brilliant young lawyer who came under the influence of Satan and was given increasing success. And then he stopped what he was doing because his success started by doing something that was wrong. And so they kind of play back the scene. And now, toward the end of the movie, he has the same scene, but now he does the right thing. And in doing the right thing, one of Satan's representatives, dressed as a news reporter, comes up to Keanu Reeves and compliments him for his extraordinary bravery and humility. And Keanu Reeves was taken by surprise, but was pleased by the compliment. And he had simply fallen under Satan's influence yet again, this time through a sense of false humility and pride. And so, but the point is that the origin of evil or one of the sources of evil and the origin of evil is from Satan who fell apart from God because of his pride, his desire to be self-governing and to root his identity apart from God. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm falling into a Flip Wilson routine. How many of you, are, I won't say old enough, but do you remember Flip Wilson, the comedian? He would always do something bad or nasty or wicked. And when he did and got caught or was about to get caught, he turned to the camera and say, the devil made me do it. I want you to understand that that is true in some cases. That there is this evil influence, whether it comes along and tells you, you know, you're just a special guy. You're a lot better than the people who live in your neighborhood. You ought to separate yourself from them. They're not really quite worthy of you. Or if he comes up to another person and says, don't you just hate black people? Wouldn't it be right to get rid of Tutsis or Hutus or Jews? But this is not a cop-out. I'm not giving us an excuse for the next issue. So evil exists because Satan exists, but that's not the total answer. Evil exists because you and I are here. Adam showed the same sins as Satan, pride. In the Genesis passage, it says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And the passage said, when the woman saw that the fruit was good, it was, it was good to the eyes. Now, notwithstanding that all the fruit in the garden was good to the eyes. It's just a part of the rationale that began. And that it was profitable to make her wise. She took. And Adam, standing there, didn't interfere. So while Eve was deceived, Adam was deliberate in his sin. But it was pride. And then secondly, for both Eve and Adam, there was this autonomy, the fact that I can act without consequence. Now, God had said, in the day that you eat that, 
fruit, you will die. Now, Adam, shamefully, is watching his wife eat. And he has this experiment going on spiritually. Is she going to drop dead in front of him? If she doesn't drop dead, if she drops dead, he's not eating. But when she doesn't drop dead, what does he do? Pass the whatever it was, and he eats it. So his was deliberate and was cruel in the sense that instead of jumping in front of her or slapping her out of her hand because God had told him the consequence, he wanted to let her be the object of this evil experiment. And so he eats deliberately. In other words, that they can be self-governing. That, that God can say, do this, and I can refuse to do it, and not have a consequence. Only God can act without consequence. And thirdly, they both, when they saw that the fruit was good for knowledge and wisdom, they are going to now root their identity in being able to know things like God does or know them without God revealing them to him, to them. So they were rooting their identity, their sense of who I am in something other than God. In this case, it was wisdom or knowledge. It does. It can be it can vary with different people. Uh, Our identity can be rooted in um, our money, our possessions. It can be rooted in our physical prowess, as with an athlete, uh, an athlete. It can be rooted in our intellectual accomplishments. It can be rooted in the fact that one may be uh, really, really good looking like Scott. Well, actually, that's a bad example. You won't be able to relate to that one. But you know where I'm going. It's to have your identity rooted in some place other than God. So um, let me read to you from... um, You know, if you go to our website, Harbor Presbyterian, you will see our values, our beliefs, our vision. Here's one of our beliefs. It's number three. Man was created sinless, but fell from that perfection when Adam chose to disobey God. Because Adam represented all humanity and because we disobey ourselves and choose to seek independence from God, the root of all sin, We are sinners in need of God's mercy. Now, Satan and Adam had the same response to God, and that is, my will be done. There is the essence of evil in the world. We know the will of God, and we say, my will be done. When Archibald McLeish made that uh, statement in JB, that if God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he is not God. And when the English philosopher made his syllogism about the Lord, there were three hidden conceits in their whole approach to the question of evil. The first conceit was that each assumed that he was not part of the problem. See, the existence of evil was due to God, and they had no role in the presence or existence of evil. That was a conceit. I remember a cartoon strip that no longer exists, at least in the papers that I now read, Pogo. And they were a bunch of swamp characters. They were alligator. They were funny, and they all lived together as a community. And there was a beaver and a turtle and so on. And Pogo was one of the characters, and they had sent him out because they felt that the swamp was coming under attack, and they wanted to figure out where the enemy was. And so he went out searching, and everywhere he saw went, he saw the swamp creatures creating the problems. And he came back to the rest of his friends, and he says, I have found the enemy. It's us. Second conceit of the, and, and that is, 
if God fixes the problem of evil, we'll be okay. That other people may have to worry when God comes to fix the problem of evil, but I will be okay. And the third conceit is that man resists and resents the will of God. We resent compulsion, even if the compulsion is by one who loves us. We want, we say, I want free will. I don't want to be a robot. I don't want somebody telling me what to do and without thinking I have to obey. I want to be independent. I want to make my own choices, make my decisions. We don't always say live with the consequences, but we want to make our own decisions and make our own choices. We don't want to be robots. So I'm going to give you just a few examples that we have found the enemy and it is us. I want to turn first to two men whom I personally greatly admire from history. One is Thomas Jefferson and one is George Washington. Both were slave owners. Both knew that slavery was wrong. Thomas Jefferson was the one who wrote that he himself penned the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created by God and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. All my slaves, do you understand what I'm reading to you? And he had this to say, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. And this architect of freedom who understood that God is just and that slavery was wrong did not release his slaves in his lifetime. To his credit, he wrote in his will that they would be released. But see, here's the cheat for him. The economic sacrifice of releasing his slaves was presented as a decision to him. My lifestyle will go down. My income will drop. I'll not be able to buy that Lexus that I wanted. I won't have that beach house that looks so nice to me now. So I'll release my slaves later rather than now. George Washington, an incredible man. His bravery is, I've read several biographies about the man. He fascinates me. I truly believe that he was God picked to be the first general and president of the country. He never went into battle except to lead it. His men revered him for his courage and his integrity and his personal sacrifice in fighting the British. But a great deal of his wealth was wrapped up in the thousand plus slaves he owned. And in his letters, he consciously weighed the problem. I think slavery is wrong. It is inconsistent with the purpose of our nation and the truth for which we are reaching. But I can't let them go because my money is wrapped up in them. Second one is really recently in the news. Elliot Spitzer, the former governor of New York, he came to power through a vigilance as the attorney general of New York prosecuting high level crime, including prostitution rings. Here's what it said about him in Time magazine. He had a long history of recklessness, a sense that the usual boundaries of authority didn't apply to him. Elsewhere, same article. Spitzer seemed to believe his burning pursuit of right justified any personal failings his boorishness, the overweening use of office, his philandering. Uh, this is uh, the former mayor Koch speaking. 
who is a friend of Spitzer. I think he felt he was totally invulnerable and could do whatever he wanted and there would be no consequences. Autonomy. And of course there's the situation from 1960 which Doug has shared with us in a previous message about a, a survivor of one of the Jewish concentration, German concentration camps in World War II. His name is Yehiel Denur. And during the Nuremberg trials, he was called to testify against Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects of the final solution in Germany to exterminate the Jews. And Adolf Eichmann was seated um, in a glass-enclosed booth, or at least behind a bulletproof shield, dressed as you and I would normally dress, sport coat, white shirt, slacks. And when uh, Yehiel Denur was brought into the courtroom, packed with dignitaries from around the world, and he looked at Adolf Eichmann, he stopped in his tracks, and he fainted right there. Later he was interviewed and asked, well, what was going on in your mind when you saw this man and, and you fainted? Was it the fact that, you know, you confronted this monster? And Yahiel said, he looked so ordinary, talking about Eichmann. And he realized that Eichmann, and I'm quoting Yehiel, Eichmann is in all of us. See, he didn't see a savage monster. He saw an ordinary middle class, upper middle class man who in any other setting you would sit across the table from and enjoy a glass of wine or talk about literature or some other cultural event. <clears throat> Let me give you one more example. It's called the Stanford Prison Experiment. If you ever want to read about it more deeply, just go to Google and type in Stanford Prison Experiment. It was done by a psychologist named Philip Zimbardo who wanted to see how people in a in a forced setting would react. And so they created this environment at Stanford. They interviewed and, and examined psychologically a number of students until they found uh, from among the 70 volunteers the most average students they could find at Stanford. And then they randomly divided them into guards and cell and prisoners. And they would, quote, arrest the wrongdoers and take them to jail. And they actually went to a jail. And then they were blindfolded and put in cars and transported. And they thought it was to another part of the prison. And it was just in the basement of the psychology building that had been set up to look like uh, a prison ward. And so of these average middle-class Stanford students, half were guards and half were inmates. And after four or five days, and, and, and the guards could, there were rules, but the guards were allowed a free hand in administering the prison. By the fifth day, the thing was getting completely out of hand. Zimbardo's girlfriend, who was also a psychologist, came to visit. She saw with horror what was happening in this mock situation. And before she went in and not knowing the what was actually happening, she had a conversation with this utterly charming, blonde, blue-eyed young man. She found him delightful. It turned out that he was the one who was most despised in the group they called him John Wayne because he was so ruthless. And when she saw what she she wasn't in there five hours. Then she went to Zimbardo and said, you got to stop this. Because it had gotten out of hand. The guards were beginning to do cruel things to the inmates. 
So they ended that study. So we see that evil is in the world because Satan exists. Evil is in the world because you and I exist. So what is God's solution for this? In Genesis 3.15, from the passage we read, it said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and, will, and between your seed and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And Satan and man share the same three problems. A desire for free will versus captive will. I want to, I want to do my own thing, be my own man. Autonomy and to have our identity rooted in some place other than God. Now, in the passage that we read from Isaiah 14, God's solution for Satan is to throw him into the pit of hell for eternity. So that naturally raises the question, if that's how God is, if that's God's plan to destroy evil when that fully happens, by throwing Satan into the pit of hell, how does he deal with the evil that you and I have in our hearts? How does God destroy evil without destroying you and me? How does a holy God let a sinner like Bill McCurin continue to exist? And the answer is the cross. The answer is the cross. Let's go to the word of encouragement that we read earlier. I'm only going to read part of it. And it says, this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Swallowed up. Now, listen to the phrase. Swallowed up in victory. It's not simply that death dies or that death is imprisoned. That makes sense. We can almost intuit that death is brought to an end. But it says that death is swallowed up in victory. And that swallowed up means to drink down, to swallow down, to utterly destroy. And it brought to mind, it brought to mind a friend of mine named George Shelton, who was looking at one of the nature channels and he saw a king snake approach another snake that was larger and s killed him and then swallowed up the other snake. He opened his mouth wide up and swallowed up the other snake so that it was utterly gone. And that snake that was gone was now nourishing and feeding the king snake. Well, I had occasion to hear uh, our pastor preach at a funeral service. And in that funeral service, he said that God is going to transform us and the world in such a way that things will be radically different, but it will not be compensation. And I, and I, I what does he mean it will not be compensation? He said he will not merely compensate for the loss, but he will transform the whole event. And let me tell you, I had to go to God on that one because I didn't understand. And I said, I, God, I, I hear what he's saying, but I don't understand this concept of compensation. And so all for the past two weeks, I have been meditating on this whole issue of compensation. And let me tell you what, what, what God has shown to me about it. I've had the situation where a mother has come before me 
whose son was killed. She was unmarried. She had never married the father, and the father was never in the picture. This was her only child. He was 19 years old, and he was gone. And she was utterly devastated. There was a hole in her heart. And as I thought about her in in light of this issue of compensation, it dawned me. How many times have I sat with clients and said, you know, given your loss, the law can only compensate you for your loss. It can assign. So compensation is assigning a monetary value to something of incalculable value. Assigning a monetary value. Now, that may work if your boat is destroyed in a fire and your insurance company steps forward and they compensate you for your loss and you go out and buy another boat. But that's not adequate for those of us who have suffered a loss on which you cannot assign a value. I can't go to that mother and say, look, I think the defendants can give you a million dollars. She doesn't want the money. The money is not going to stop the fact that her son is not going to sit across from her table at Thanksgiving. She's never going to be able to wrap her arms around him again and say, I love you. She's never going to hear from him. Mom, thank you. I love you. They're never going to laugh together. They're not going to take walks together. And no amount of money is going to fill that void. Well, then you say, how about adoption? That's a better thing. That's replacement, which is just another form of of compensation. And yes, she can love this other child. And this other child will bring her joy. But it will never replace the son she lost. She will never cease to miss her boy. She will wake up still in the middle of the night at times uncontrollably crying when she thought she had gotten past it. But see, what God does when he says he swallows it up in victory is that he transforms our lives so profoundly that he restores The thing that was lost, whether it's a loved one or whether it's your health or whatever it was, in such a way that the loss not only nourishes us and feeds us, but what we have in Christ, in the new heaven, in the new earth, makes not compensation, but restoration. The whole that was there is not only filled up but filled up in such a way that the loss has enriched us and given us such a deeper sense of who God is so an example is like having a cup of raw sewage that's our loss but when God swallows it up in victory and transforms it it's not that he cleans the cup of the sewage is that in place of that cup, there is an ocean that is clear from top to bottom where the sun penetrates to the very floor and that there is no impurity in it. And you say, if that's what it meant for this sewage to be clean, praise God for it. I never would have conceived. Such a great thing out of this law. It is richer than what I ever had before. And that is all accomplished by the cross. And of course, the cross itself is the best and most relevant example of restoration rather than compensation. When Jesus died on the cross for us, It is the worst thing that ever happened in humanity. 
And, and we can't look on it as just his suffering in a physical sense because other people have been crucified. And we can, we can say, well, you know, other people have suffered as much as Jesus in that sense. But what they cannot do is say that they had this cosmic suffering that Jesus experienced where he steps into eternity under the full weight of the wrath of God for what you and I have done. Somehow separated from the Father from whom he is inseparable. Being made sin for us and utterly consumed by that sin and cast into hell so that you and I could walk freely. That cross represents the worst failure. He was a failure in the eyes of his family. He was a failure in the eyes of his disciples. And he was a failure to the people who walked along the road past the crucifix into Jerusalem. What a wasted life. And God transforms that crucifixion and restores it so that not only is Christ risen from the grave, but he creates a new heaven and a new earth, which includes us who have no right to be there. The cross is God's ultimate and final answer to the problem of evil. Because evil will be fully punished. And it is either going to be fully punished in us personally, or it's going, to be it's going to be punished for us through Jesus Christ. But it will be punished. Either way, evil is going to be totally destroyed. And either way, man will get his wish. Evil will be gone. And the issue is, will I be destroyed in the process or restored in the process? In many ways, the world is simply divided into two groups. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. And that's a choice that we make. And it's a choice that we only make through Jesus Christ. So let me close with a, a, just a little analogy. We know when we come to Christ that we look at our bank account and we see that it has a negative balance. There's nothing in it. And then God restores us despite us having no merit for ourselves. And then when we come to Christ, knowing that we are without merit and that our salvation has been given to us as a gift, then we begin to work for it. And our working for it is like putting money in our account. I go to church and there's a certain deposit in my account. I preach at Harvard, there's a certain deposit in my account. I feed the poor and there's a certain deposit in my account. And we think of that as sanctification. And there are two problems with that. I look at my account, which I think now has a positive balance. And then I look at Candace's account. Now, I've got $200,000 in my account. And doggone it, Candace has 350000 And now I'm despairing because Candace has got more money in her account than I have in mine. But, oh, I, I look at Stephen Cooper, and I see he's got $75,000 in his account. And I feel pretty darn good relative to Steve. And I want to tell him I can get a little more money in his account by following my example. And so that process leads to either pridefulness on the one hand, which separates me from Stephen and God, or despair on the other, which separates me from Candace or God. The right way of looking at it, when you grow in Christ, is when I first came to Christ, I thought my account had a negative balance of a dollar. 
And now that I walk with Christ these years, I realize my negative balance is incalculable. It's in the billions of dollars. But I don't despair because I'm not looking at my account anymore. I'm looking at Jesus' account. And I notice that though mine says billions of dollars in the red, I look on Jesus' account and it has his name and right under his name is my name. Do you see the difference? So the cross presents us with a sweet paradox. We are worse than we ever dared to admit. But we are loved and accepted more than we could ever have conceived possible. And all done because Jesus took our rejection so that we could experience the Father's acceptance for Jesus and have that apply to us. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we are so thankful that you have a plan for evil and that you will utterly destroy it. And it would be right and just if you destroyed us in the process but out of your own sovereign love and mercy, you have not destroyed us, but destroyed your son on the cross for our sakes so that our evil could be punished without we actually being destroyed. And then you restore in such a way that all our losses are made so new that they exceed our wildest hopes of what could be possible. And you have done it because you are loving, because you are holy, because you are God. Amen.